Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Amaphidon. Thanks for tuning in. In honor of Memorial Day, Bostonians gathered in the Commons to pay tribute to our fallen troops. You're about to do something incredible. You're going to remember each and every one of the 37,369 brave men and women from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts who died in service to our country from the Revolutionary War until the present. Last Wednesday at the Soldiers and Sailors Monument, dozens gathered in commemoration of the brave individuals who served in the military and gave their lives to protect our nation. Boston Common was covered with over 37,000 American flags, one for each Commonwealth citizen who sacrificed himself in pursuit of American freedom. There are 37,000 flags, one for every fatality from the Revolutionary War to the present. And the demand that we respect what these people, they gave their lives, what more can you ask of somebody? There's every possible flavor of human being is represented by these 37,000 flags. And it's, it, it feels to me that it's my duty to be here so that other people can share um, the life that we live because it's made up of the lives of these 37,000 people. Memorial Day is considered the beginning of the summer season, but Mass Military Heroes Fund made a point to help Boston remember the real reason for the holiday, to honor our fallen service members. Mass Military Heroes Fund started this flag garden 14 years ago as a way to honor our families, the bereaved military families who lost a loved one in service since 9-11. And it's imperative that people remember that Memorial Day is about so much more than opening your cape house or picnics and car sales. We want to remind them that each one of these flags represents a loved one lost, a service member who gave the ultimate sacrifice as a result of their service dating back to the Revolutionary War. We want everybody to know that looking out at these flags represents a true hero. It's so important to come out and support um, you know, our veterans and their families uh, and honor those who have given so much to keep us safe and you know, let us enjoy the lives we do. Um, my grandfather served in the U.S. Army, have you know, other friends and, and family who have served, um, and it, it's, you know, it's important to come out and show how tremendously grateful we are. The flags represent more than war outcomes in history. They are a symbol of sacrifice, bravery, and commitment. There's more than 37,000 flags on display by the end of today. Um, each one represents an incredible hero that raised their right hand, made a decision to serve our nation, knowing full well that it could cost them their life. And in their case, it did. They are the real heroes here today. We are here to honor them. The reason we plant these 37,000 flags for Memorial Day is to remind the public of the importance of Memorial Day, of taking a moment to remember and honor the sacrifices of each and every one of the men and women represented in this flag garden who gave their life in service to our country and to our commonwealth. It is our way to visually represent the enormity of the sacrifices our military community has made. Happy Pride, Boston. The city kicked off the beginning of the month-long celebration by bringing together the community at City Hall Plaza. On Thursday, all the colors of Boston came together to start LGBTQ Pride Month with a bang at City Hall Plaza. 
Mayor Michelle Wu and the Mayor's Office of LGBTQ Advancement organized several Pride events throughout the summer, and the first day of June certainly set the vibe as they raised the Pride flag to queer liberation. Starting off the event, Governor Maura Healey and Mayor Michelle Wu spoke about how far we've come and how far we have to go. Pride, as you heard, is not just a celebration, it is an opportunity a chance to reflect on and honor the rich revolutionary history of pride in Massachusetts and in Boston and our queer family and friends. And it's a reminder that our work is not done until we have achieved equity for all, our work continues. That's the commitment we renew today, not just for the month of June, but for the whole year. Today, I just wanna to speak to those who went before me and so many of us. We are here today in these roles with these responsibilities because of people who are brave, unafraid to live their lives openly and authentically, particularly in times of tremendous hardship. We may never know their stories, we may never know their faces or their names, and it's beautiful to see so many people represented in this Portraits of Pride celebration. It's been a wonderful thing that has happened year after year. But I also know that behind those portraits are so many heroes. And I just want to say humbly, I am grateful to all the people who made possible what I am able to do today. The Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture presented a new public exhibit, Portraits of Pride, highlighting people who have made huge strides for the LGBTQ community in the Commonwealth. Two of whom spoke about the importance of pride. Pride is so important because oftentimes historically excluded communities like the LGBTQ community uh, get erased or get commercialized in a way that uh, people just, oh, happy pride, here is a new rainbow item in a different store. And while there is space for that, that celebration and that acceptance of people, uh, it is important that we continue to remember why we are where we are today to the to the words of Governor Healy to the words of Mayor Wu right like we have a lot of work ahead of us but we also have a lot of giants whose shoulders we're standing on today I think pride is so important because it, it gives people a chance to celebrate each other and their their true selves and true form the newly renovated plaza was filled with people celebrating freedom of self-expression and focused on lifting up voices of BIPOC LGBTQ plus people. It feels amazing and especially for our black, brown and um, Latino LGBT community, it feels amazing to know that we have the city's backing um, of us. I feel good. I feel good. I feel like there was a time where we weren't able to express ourselves so freely. So now we live in a time where we're able just to be our true selves, whatever, you know, however we feel we are, we get to express it just, just freely. Adriana Boulen is the president of Boston Pride for the People, a new organization spearheading this year's Pride celebration. We're trying to do this things different. We're trying to allow people to feel included and make space for people to share where they might not be feeling that so that we can work more towards that. So we've been doing a lot um, and are continuing to invite the community into that. But queer people and allies know that there'd be no Pride Month without those who came before and laid the groundwork for LGBTQ rights. Silvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson were the first the first people that came to, to sort of just 
exist in my uh, understanding of what our fight has been, of what pride has been. So they, they will continue to be icons for me and for everybody. I would say one in particular is Alokvi Menon. Um, they are such an advocate for the trans community, trans communities of color, and just help frame LGBTQ and pride and gender nonconformity in a way of liberation. One thing is certain. The Commonwealth will do whatever it takes to bring equity and inclusion to all facets of our life. So matter no what they do, everyone is welcome here in Massachusetts. Everyone is seen in Massachusetts. Everyone is heard in Massachusetts. Everyone is respected in Massachusetts. Everyone is loved in Massachusetts. And more than anything, love always wins. God bless all of you. Happy Pride. Crystal Ray High Boston seniors are moving up in the world and starting off on the right foot at the annual Senior March on Wednesday. Do you hear that? That's the sound of excellence at Crystal Ray Boston High School in Savin Hill, where 100% of their seniors have been accepted into college. It's no easy feat, and yet not a surprising one for this private school. This is the third year in a row the graduating senior class has achieved a 100% college acceptance rate. To mark the joyous occasion, there's the Senior College March, where students wear their incoming colleges t-shirt to be celebrated by friends, family, teachers, and community. And it's now a tradition. Although the COVID pandemic pushed many of these students to the brink, they found the resolve to press on and keep working hard. When COVID happened, I lost so much of my motivation to do school, and it was it was for a large part it was a struggle. But then my teachers kept uh, kept uh, encouraging me. They kept being hospitable, and they just they just let they just let me know that I was welcome to keep trying. I like I wasn't I wasn't just it was it wasn't over for me, and so that really got got me uh, allowed me to push through my sophomore year, and then for my junior and senior year. Their, their words and sentiments gave me so much motivation that I, I couldn't stop. Their colleges and plans for the future are just as diverse and expansive as Crystal Ray's 2023 class. I have committed to Salem State University and I've chose that school because when I visited there, I was like, this, I think this is the perfect idea for me. And when I go there, I want to study criminal justice and business. I have um, been accepted to UMass, UMass Lowell and I will be going there for computer science. Boston College is my dream school, so I got accepted this year, and I'll be double majoring in secondary education in English, so that like I'm basically on the teaching path. And their reasons for wanting to pursue higher education are deeply personal. So my mom, she didn't go to college when I, you know, she didn't go to college. None of my family members went to college, so it's very important. That's all she's been telling me since I was a little girl, that she wants me to go to college. She wants me to be something great as long as I'm happy. So I'm really happy that I can, you know, help her uh, achieve that dream because she wasn't able to. This world needs you. They need Crystal Ray graduates right now because you're going to bring our core values of dignity, growth, perseverance, and generosity. Our world needs it and you're bringing it to them and you're making our world better because of it. Amen. Excellent work. Amen. Amen. No one is prouder than the school's educators who've been there every step of the way especially President Rosemary Powers, who not only lives in the neighborhood, but is a Crystal Ray High alum. What we want to make sure is that our students are not just thriving in the classroom, and we want them to thrive in the classroom, but that we make it possible for them to thrive in the classroom. And that's by providing 
you know, all different kinds of support, a strong food program, lots of personal attention, mentoring programs, health here at school. So all of these different pieces to surround the child, or as I say, we try to be like, uh, we're like the snowplow. We're going down the street in front of the students and just pushing away the barriers. So it's not enough just to have that strong academic program. It has to be surrounded with lots of support. 93% of students hail from the city of Boston. Crystal Ray is the only private tuition-free college prep high school in the city. Since moving from Cambridge to Dorchester in 2010, the school has been shaping the leaders of tomorrow from families of low economic resources. And Crystal Ray Boston High wants you to know that wherever you come from, you're welcome here to succeed. This week, representatives from the USDA were in town for the Northeast Regional Summit to further last October's National Nutrition Summit, which happened for the first time in Washington, D.C. Nutrition and healthcare leaders toured Boston Medical Center to learn the many innovations the hospital has implemented from rooftop, rooftop urban gardens to teaching kitchens, providing healthy, nutritious meals for the community. The morning concluded with a roundtable discussion. Boston Medical Center, the future of nutrition and health integration through an equity and economic lens. And to cap the day, tour guests venture to Jamaica Plains Community Servings, a local nonprofit servicing thousands of people across Massachusetts, experiencing a range of critical and chronic illnesses. One meal at a time, volunteers and trained chefs help residents improve their health through nutritionally appropriate food made from scratch from wholesome ingredients. Alberto Gonzalez currently serves as Senior Advisor for External Engagement at the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Food and Nutrition Service. Alberto's role at FNS involves engaging healthcare, food, nutrition, and anti-hunger partners on FNS's more than 15 federal nutrition assistance programs and the USDA's Nutrition Security Initiative to advance health equity. He talked to us about the strides being made to increase awareness of nutritional eating and how organizations like Community Servings are making nutrition security possible. Alberto, you're currently in town for the third of seven regional summits on nutrition security. This one focused on the Northeast following USDA's first national nutrition security and healthcare summit on October 25th of last year. Can you provide us with an overview and the connection between the White House conference and the regional summit's goals? Sure. Well, the national nutrition security and healthcare summit happened a bit of a few weeks after the White House conference, and it was really an opportunity to amplify the importance of integrating nutrition and health and what that means. We know that uh, health access, we know that access to healthy foods is essential to promote optimal health and well-being. And what we did at the National Summit was really celebrate the, the success of the healthcare sector and how they are uplifting the importance of nutrition assistance programs identifying opportunities for the healthcare sector to promote our programs and really look to see how else we can work together to achieve the goals of the White House Conference. Can you share what exactly you saw at Boston Medical Center and community servings in Jamaica Plain? How is what's happening there related to the summit? Absolutely. So at, at Boston Medical Center, we had the opportunity to visit the hospital, to visit the center, to look at their uh, farm that was on their roof and learn about the connections the farm has with the local community, with the patients, really seeing firsthand what we mean when it comes to 
increasing access to healthy foods for populations, particularly those that are underserved. And so we had the opportunity to also visit a food pantry on sites uh, with staff by a WIC team, uh, really, again, to amplify the importance of how our programs at the USDA's Food and Nutrition Service connect with innovative uh, projects and approaches like those uh, that we visited today here at the Boston Medical Center and at community servings. We had the opportunity to see firsthand a medically tailored meals program serving populations here in the Boston area uh, to ensure that families and individuals with chronic conditions who are underserved have access to healthy foods. What is nutrition security and how does it differ from food security? Well, it's important to note that nutrition security builds on our long-standing work to address food insecurity. And when we say nutrition security, we mean consistent access to equitable, consistent and equitable access to healthy, safe, and affordable foods essential to optimal health and well-being. What's preventing the United States from achieving nutrition security for all Americans? Well, one of the approaches that we're taking right now is to ensure that all people eligible for our programs are able to access them. And that includes WIC. We know that one in two that are eligible for WIC are not signed up for the program. And when it comes to SNAP, about one in five that are eligible for SNAP are not signed up for the program. And that's why we are working to engage various uh, leaders in the healthcare sector to help us promote our programs to reach all those that are eligible. We know that research has shown that uh, programs like WIC, for example, have been found to reduce healthcare costs, uh, reduce food insecurity, and improve health outcomes. So this is a win-win situation for everybody. Can you discuss the concept of food as medicine? Yes. So we know there's lots of excitement around food as medicine. There's uh, various conversations and, and leaders that are part of this, this movement. And I think what it shows us, it, it, what it shows everyone is that we need to ensure that there is a whole of society approach to address these long-standing disparities in food access. And it includes various healthcare players, it includes the government, nonprofit organizations, community-based organizations, to ensure that we're able to work to reduce food insecurity, improve health equity. We know that COVID exacerbated the situation for a lot of communities. And I think when we talk about and see this excitement around food as medicine, it's an opportunity for us to all work together to achieve the same goal. And this aligns nicely with what we're trying to do at the, at the USDA's Food and Nutrition Service in terms of advancing our food and nutrition security efforts. What new changes is USDA making to support healthy eating patterns? Well, one, one approach I will share is our, our recent investments in WIC. Uh, WIC is, is an important public health nutrition program that uh, reaches millions of people, millions of, of women, infants, and children across the country. But about one in two that are, that are eligible for the program are not signed up. And so what we've done is really invested in, in community-based outreach initiatives, leveraging trusted messengers to get the word out about WIC in communities that, that are eligible but are not aware about the program. And similarly, we are within our food and nutrition security efforts, we're looking to engage various players in the healthcare sector to promote our programs, to get more people signed up for our programs. We are uh, working to uh, across different sectors. We are working to uh, with hospital systems, really to be able to promote and raise awareness about the, the impact of our programs 
uh, to ensure that all those that are eligible for it can access it. And as I as we've seen and heard, there's uh, research that shows how these programs, our nutrition assistance programs, are are critical to advance health equity across the country. What are your hopes for this week as you continue to interact with other leaders in the food nutrition field? Well, my hope is that more, more individuals, more organizations, more healthcare sector leaders are aware about our suite of nutrition assistance programs that reach millions across the country and what role they can play to help promote our programs, but also thinking about ways we can collaborate with one another and what are some unlikely partnerships that can really take this work and, and drive it even further. Uh, and again, the, the White House Conference on Hungry Nutrition and Health really amplified the importance of cross-sector engagement, but also that we need a whole society approach to achieve these goals. We need, we need the private sector, the nonprofit, the, the government to be involved. And my hope again is that we just, we have more partners out there that are aware about our programs and this inspires more collaboration and, and opportunities to work together to advance the goals of the White House Conference, but also to advance food and nutrition security. Finally, for viewers who want to learn more about nutrition security or USDA's work, where can they go? They can visit our website at uh, USDA.gov. We have a webpage dedicated to our food and nutrition security initiative. We have blogs and other exciting opportunities on ways that partners, and community members can learn more about our programs and engage with partners that are working on these efforts. Beans. Let me count the many ways that I love the legume. This June, Saturday, June 24th to be exact, the inaugural Beantown Bean Fest makes its way to Rose Kennedy Greenway from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. And we had Christina Knowles, the festival's executive director, not to mention founding member and COO of the soon-to-be Equalizer Institute, talk with us about the bean's connective cultural power and how the institute will make small business possible for underrepresented communities. Enjoy the interview. Christina, welcome to the studio. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Faith. I'm thrilled to be here. And I just want to toot your, your horn for a second. Thank you for this beautiful bowl of <laughs> jelly beans here. It's definitely a first. Uh, and speaking of first, we're here to talk about the Bean Town Bean Fest. Uh, and what is it exactly? Yeah, absolutely, Faith. Thank you again for having me here today. And I have to give you a fun fact about the jelly beans I brought for you here. Jelly beans were actually invented in Massachusetts by the Schraft Company. And um, lore has it that they were used to help sustain soldiers during the Civil War. <laughs> Did not know that. That's a fun fact for you. Very fun fact. Um, but the Beantown Bean Fest, we are absolutely thrilled. Boston has known it as Beantown internationally, and we are finally having an event to celebrate all things Beantown and all things Boston and all things Bean. It will be on June 24th, which is a Saturday on the Rose Kennedy Greenway. It'll be a beautiful summer day from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Uh, great day for residents, visitors alike to come on out. We'll have a variety of different bean-based foods, uh, retailers, games, crafts, activities, performers, um, for folks to come out and enjoy a beautiful day across from the Bar Boston Harbor Hotel. 
I love that. And what is Boston's connection to beans? And why was it important for the New England Legal Foundation to center the inaugural festival on it? Absolutely. So the, uh, Boston's connections to beans uh, goes very far back into our history. Originally, indigenous communities had beans as part of their diet. And later, the Puritans, uh, because they were unable to do any work on the Sabbath, on Sunday, they would prepare pots of beans the day before, bake them and they would stay warm overnight um, and so they could have them on Sundays without doing any preparations or breaking their practices. Wow. <laughs> okay. And um, so the Beantown Bean Fest is um, going to support the Equalizer Institute, which is in the works. Yes. Um, how will the Equalizer Institute support small business in the city and what type of assistance will it offer? Great question. Uh, the Equalizer Institute is a project of the New England Legal Foundation. It's a social and economic justice uh, initiative, and it will actually provide legal funding to historically underrepresented and resourced entrepreneurs. So women, folks from the BIPOC and LGBT communities, returning citizens, new Americans, first generation veterans, students, all the folks that historically have had great ideas, but not necessarily a lot of capital access. Our mm -hmm. hope is that per by providing legal services, the entrepreneurs will then be able to put those tens of thousands of dollars that they normally would um, use for legal assistance back into getting their business up and running. So whether that's, you know, putting more money into the design of their shop for advertising, marketing, um, you know, things that they that they need to get up, putting into staffing, uh, they will then not need to spend those tens of thousands of dollars on legal services and can put that towards other aspects of their business. Mm, that's wonderful. Um, so a lot of people being helped by the, the Institute. And what are you most excited about for Beantown Bean Festival? I am excited about all of it. It's, it's just going to be a fantastic day to be out and about in the city. We'll have a wide variety of performers, everything from bands to um, um, comedians. And we'll have activities lined up. We'll have cornhole or beanbag toss, if you will, of course. We will have uh, bean-themed games and crafts for kids and fam families of all ages. We will have uh, be lots of bean bags for people to <laughs> pull up a seat on the Greenway and enjoy the day. Um, and of course, we'll have lots of food vendors selling different types of beans. Um, we really see, uh, just like the equalizer will level the playing field for entrepreneurs, we really see beans as a great equalizer and uh, common thread through all the communities in Boston. Uh, you know, Boston may be famous for it's baked beans specifically, but we are becoming um, a more and more diverse and cultural city. And it's really important that we show the way beans are used in cuisines all across our neighborhoods. Mm, the connection of beans. <laughs> and for those who are interested in becoming a vendor or yes. checking out the Beantown Bean Festival, how can they do so? Sure, they can go right to www.beantownbeanfest.org. You can find our social media there, our website, information on how to contact me, and we will be continuing to post vendors and performers as we line them up and it gets closer to the day. Oh, that's so exciting. Christina Knowles, Executive Director of Beantown Bean Fest, also founding member and Chief Operating Officer of the Equalizer Institute. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Faith. And I can't wait to uh, check out the festival. Can't wait to see you there. That's our broadcast for tonight, Boston. Thanks for tuning in. For BNN News, I'm Faith Amaphidon. I'll see you next Friday. <laughs>